If you don't know who I am, my name is Megan. I am Pastor Jared's wife. You can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, which is where we'll be. There's been this theme that's been in our house for the last couple months, um, and it's, it's about being countercultural to the world around us. Um, and I, I learned a phrase in reading a book, um, I'm going to talk to you about that in a minute, and it's called um, a beautiful resistance. And we're going to talk about what that means to be a beautiful resistance to the world around us today. Um, I, fun fact, <laughs> I am not a reader. I think it's because I have so much energy and I just hate to sit down and read a book. If someone's like, sit down and read, I'm like, ugh. I mean, to me, that's the boringest job ever. And when I was in high school, past the age of spanking, well, sorry, that's probably more like junior high. Um, <laughs> my parents, for me, a punishment for me was they would make me read a book, which is probably why I even hate it till today. They would make me sit in my room for four hours and read, and I would have to come back and give them a report of what I read. And I hated it. I hated it so bad. My middle sister loved to read. She loved Lord of the Rings. I mean, all these books. I mean, she would just have books and books and books piled in her room. And I would sneak in there from time to time and hide the book she was reading on purpose just so she would go outside and play with me. But when she got in trouble, my parents made her go outside and play for four hours, and she hated it. And I was stuck inside, and I'm like, I want to go play so bad. So I think it's, I'm up here to tell you all this. The Bible study today is on a Bible study, but I just finished. This is like, besides the Bible, I've read through the Bible a few times, but this is like maybe the third book in all my life that I've actually finished reading, you know, by the grace of God. Um, and we're going to talk, we're gonna just, I'm just going to refer from it today. So I'm not up here to give a book report or a, a, a yeah, book thing on it, review. But I, but there's something that, um, this book is called Live No Lies by John Mark Comer. It's an excellent read. Um, if you're looking for a book to read, it's very convicting, very encouraging, talking about the lies that we believe from the pit of hell all the time um, and how to, how to fight those lies, right? How to not believe the lies that are being whispered from the enemy. But in the book, at the very end, John Mark Homer references John Tyson's book, which I have not read yet, called A Beautiful Resistance, encouraging the church to be, and I quote, countercultural to the world and its vision of life of rebellion against God. And if you're anything like me, I need to look up definitions quite often. I was homeschooled from half of eighth to senior, so there's a lot I missed, I think. <laughs> um, counterculture means, and I, I have it up there, any culture whose values and lifestyles are opposed to those of the established mainstream culture, especially to Western culture. And this is exactly what a follower of Jesus should, their life should look like. Countercultural to the world around us. And um, uh, right now we have a wonderful 13-year-old son. I already prepped him. I said, you're going to be used a lot today. He's okay with it. Um, I told him I'd be real careful what I said. Um, if any of you have a middle schooler um, or a high schooler, this is a hard time of their life. They are trying to figure out who they are. They're trying to figure out what's cool, what's not cool. Personally, I don't think Crocs are cool. I'll just shout out to all of you out there. But <laughs> my son seems to think they are like every other kid seems to think they are. <laughs> um, so we're trying to figure things out. But he recently has joined um, a middle school basketball team. 
um, locally here in Spokane. And we've had to have um, lots of conversations with him because there's lots of things said, you know, in, a, in, a, in public school and even in the world if you go to the grocery store. There's lots of things said and lots of bullying happening and lots of things that are mean. And we've had, to, we've had to be talking to him a lot over the last couple months about what it means in our Lee life, in the Lee home, to be a beautiful resistance, to be countercultural to the world around us. How can we bring light to a lost and dying and hurt world? Hurt people hurt people. That's what I so let's be the ones that stop it, right? Um, I was listening to Air One every now and then, and the guy always says, if you can't find someone who's kind, be someone who's kind. And I love that phrase. It's so simple, and we've been teaching our son and our daughters that too. You be the one that brings this beautiful light to the world around us. Um, so like I said, I've never read um, John Tyson's book, Beautiful Resistance, but Jesus in his word in the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount, gives us very practical ways to be a countercultural Christian in the world around us, to be a follower of Jesus that looks so different than what is happening around us. And this is what I really just wanted to talk about um, today. So uh, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. This is Jesus. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And sorry, I forgot to pray. We're going to pray real quick. Lord Jesus, thank you again for this morning. Thank you again for time in your word. I pray that you would come and fill us with your Holy Spirit. I pray that your Holy Spirit would fall afresh upon all of us right now. That you would just speak. That your word would not return void. And that you would encourage our souls exactly exactly where they need to be encouraged, Lord. And we pray for those who are sick in our congregation that you would come upon them afresh right now as well, Lord, and fill them fill them to the full and overflowing with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its flavor, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Uh, When he says... Uh, He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed. We're going to see this word a lot. This word actually means, it can be translated happy, or it can mean a state of utmost bliss. I had a friend ask me recently, doesn't God just want me to be happy? She was sad at the moment. And she said, I don't understand. Doesn't God want me to be happy? And I thought about her answer, and I was like, well, maybe you guys have asked this question to yourself. Doesn't God just want me to be happy? 
Jesus said in John 10, 10, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Psalm 16, 11 says, you make me, I'm sorry, you make known to me the path of life and in your presence there's fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. To answer to my friend's question, what God wants is for you to find your life in him. True happiness and peace and joy and what you're looking and searching for is found only in God, in the one who created you. And so in Matthew chapter 5, and actually the Beatitudes through chapter 8, he's going to teach his disciples what it means to be this counterculture, this beautiful resistance to the world around them. And in return, they are going to find true happiness. They are going to find what fulfills and satisfies their life in the way he is calling them to live. So actually, do you know that God doesn't call you to be happy? He calls you to die. If you're like, I've never been to church before. I'm leaving. Hang in there. Hang in there. I'll tell you. But the Bible says in order, he who wants to find his life must lose it first right? Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. I love that song that they picked to sing this morning. Let me tell you about my Jesus. Let me tell you about my Jesus. There's a, there's a, you might think, gosh, it's hard to follow Jesus. He wants me to die to myself. He wants me to sacrifice myself for others. He wants me to put others before me. What about my feelings? What about my hurt? What about my heart? He sees all of that, right? But let me tell you that the world without Jesus is a lot harder of a road. It's a lot more, more heart-wrenching and gut-wrenching of a road. And it doesn't mean that being a Christian is easy. It means that we have a hope. It means that we have a Jesus who walks with us on our hard road and teaches us and holds our hands through it. So if you're saying, how can I be happy? I'm depressed. I'm this. This is exactly how Jesus says the ways that you can find true, true bliss in what he teaches. So first, he teaches the disciples, those who have chosen to follow him. And he opens his mouth and he says, verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit. So remember, blessed means happy at the utmost bliss is to be poor in spirit. One way to die to yourself and find true happiness is to be poor in spirit. Well, what does this mean? Well, we all know what it means to be rich and to be poor, right? In a material sense, to be rich, you have plenty. To be poor, you have nothing. And so what it means to be poor in spirit is to mean you know without a shadow of a doubt with everything you've got in you that you are nothing and you have nothing to give except just to put your faith and trust in Jesus. We are nothing without him. In John 15, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Do we truly believe that we are nothing apart from the one who created us? Do you know that the breath that you're breathing right now, the very breath that you just took in your lungs is a gift It's a gift from the creator who created you. And in the very moment, he can take that breath away. There is a real God that we face, and there's a healthy fear to have of him. The breath that you breathe in your lungs is exactly from the God who created it for you because he has a plan and a purpose for you to be here today. But in the pure, to be poor in spirit means to know I am nothing. I am not cool without God. I am not who you are trying to find your identity in. You are nothing apart from the creator who created you. And this is actually the first step 
If you're not a Christian here today, this is, and you're like, I don't know, I'm just testing the waters. I'm trying to feel this out. This is the first step in the gospel is to realize that there is someone who created you, who has a plan and a purpose for your life and for your soul, and you need him. We need a savior. If you're sitting here saying, I don't understand why all these people are in here lifting up their hands and worshiping is because we know that we are nothing apart from the one who created our soul nothing. And this is what it means to be poor, poor in spirit. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. It doesn't say only the worship leaders have not. Only the pastors have not. Only the Christians have not. All, all, all. Everybody say that. Do you know what all means in the Greek? All. (laughs) There you go. Bible trivia for you. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 10 through 12, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside and together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one soul. This is what it means to be poor in spirit. Wait, what? So you want me to be so like What's the word I'm looking for? Distraught in yourself, which makes you happy. Yes, to be poor in spirit, to realize you need Jesus is the first step to finding true fulfillment and true hope and true satisfaction in your life. Second, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. When you think of mourning, sadness, I'm going to get there to the deep meaning of it, but it's, I, I like to cry. <laughs> I actually really like to cry. I really like to be sad sometimes. When Jared's gone sometimes, I will put on the soldiers coming home and visiting their families and kids, and I will ball for hours, and I feel so good. It's like I ran a marathon when I'm done. I'm like, this is the best feeling ever. And I know not anyone can like relate to that. Maybe some women in here. Maybe some men. Oh, thank you, Jamie. She's like, I'm here. I'm for you. Come cry with me. Come cry with me. It feels good, but this kind of mourning is this, is this, it's not mourning like if you just cry like that. When I hear this word mourn and I read it in the Bible, it's a deep soul hurt with chest painful sobs of tears. Have you ever mourned like this before? Personally, I have not lost a close family member. Um, The closest death of that's been closest to me um, has been, um, I had a miscarriage um, right before my Jordy, and that was really hard, and I remember mourning, but I have never lost a dad or a mom or a brother or a sister or a close cousin or a close aunt even yet, or my grandma yet, and, but I have seen my friends around me who have, and the mourning is so deep. The mourning is so hard. It is such a hard place to be, and they are sad. They are distraught. It's hard to see the light in those moments. And he says, blessed are those who mourn. Wait, what? You think I'm going to be happy when I cry like this? But this is what he means. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin. So this this deep hurt that you've lost for a loved one, if anyone can relate, this is how he wants you to feel over your sin, over what happens in your sin, but not what just happens in your life, but what happens in the world around us. Does anybody watch the news? Does anybody see what's happening? Your heart and soul should be mourning. It should be mourning for those who don't have the hope and the light of Jesus. This is where I'm going to reference John Mark Comer's book, Live No Lies. He references the movie Peanut Butter Falcon. 
um, and expresses one of the reasons for loving this movie is because of its agenda to show that Down syndrome is, yes, a disability, but not a factor in determining if a human soul should live or not. Um, I'm going to read just two short paragraphs because it, it should make your... Well, I got to find it. I had it earlier. There it is. It should make your soul mourn when you hear this. Since the 1980s, when screening for Down syndrome became more common for pregnant women, most babies with Down syndrome have just been quietly aborted outside the public eye. We don't have reliable statistics, but most estimates say America aborts 67% of babies with a prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome, France 77%, and Scandinavian countries like Denmark around 98%. Due to widespread testing and abortion on demand, Iceland is close to 100%. One Icelandic doctor recently said, we have basically eradicated almost Down syndrome from our society. By eradicated, he meant we've killed all the babies with Down syndrome. He called it genetic counseling. You now have leading thinkers like Peter Singer, the moral philosopher and professor of bioethics at Princeton, making a case for killing babies with disabilities, and others calling for afterbirth abortion, saying parents should wait for days after birth before they decide to terminate the baby's life or not. Yet the current iteration of infant, infant, ah, infanticide is not only socially acceptable, but also celebrated as a form of liberation and a human right. And here's the kicker. If you dare to insinuate that this thinking is rooted in convoluted logic or that it's scientifically or philosophically much less scripturally indefensible, you're instantly labeled regressive or worse, oppressive. If you try to assert that all babies, regardless of their intellectual capacity, are worthy of love and celebration, you're instantly labeled as anti-progress. Because in the new moral hierarchy, choice, desire, and sexually free of responsibility are all more important than the life of the unborn. A baby is seen not as a human soul, but as an unwanted responsibility to be terminated. Let me read that again, because this makes me cry. A baby is seen not as a human soul, but as an unwanted responsibility to be terminated. This is the stuff that should be making our souls mourn for the world around us and not just our own sin because remember we just learned all will fall short of the glory of God. That is me and that is you. But there is a world that's dying and lost around us and we can't look at them and point our finger and shake our finger. This world needs the love of Jesus. This world needs you and me to walk out those doors and love people. This world needs you and me to walk out those doors and share Jesus with a lost and dying world and tell them there is a hope and a plan and a reason and to hug those mommies who are about to abort those babies and say, I will help you and I will carry you along the way with me. This is where the Bible says, blessed are those who mourn over these things. Why? Because you shall be comforted. When we mourn over our own sins, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He can forgive. He can set free the bonds of sin. When we go out and share the gospel with the lost and dying world, we will see them set free from their sin. This is why there is comfort in Jesus, in the Father. This is where you can find true happiness, in the Father. The next one, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Meek in the Strong's Concordance in the Greek means the necessary balance of exercising power and avoiding harshness. Another form of meekness is humility. Who has conquered this? Please raise your hand and please give us a class. I would love to take it from you. I have not conquered this whatsoever. It's the laying down of your own rights to instead show love and servitude. It's what Jesus meant later in his Sermon on the Mount when he said this in Matthew 5, 38 through 45. He says this, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust even if you are right you have a meekness about you right a humility about you to not prove your rightness right to not prove i am right you are wrong i am better you are worse not one of us is better than the other it is strength controlled meekness is a strength controlled um Yeah, I was going to say something, but I don't remember. So there you go. (laughs) Does this not sound countercultural to you? Do any of these words so far that Jesus has said, does it match up with what the world says makes us happy? I read an article about, um, oh, I wish I would have printed it out, but I didn't. It's probably better for your sake. But it uh, it was about beauty in the world and cosmetics and fitness and It said women in their lifespan spend, oh, I'm going to misquote it, but it was like $350,000 on just cosmetics. I was like, well, in America, that's not even in the world, that's Americans. Then it was uh, yearly, it was women spend 3000 average American, women spend a little over $3,000 on fitness and beauty in a year, in a year. I, geez, I would rather sacrifice makeup and go to Maui. But I'm like, I do that, <laughs> right? Men spend a little over 2000 on gyms and fitness and protein shakes and stuff. So I was like, it was crazy. It was like, it like put a perspective in my mind of, ooh, like, These are the things that we say. Oh, and in the article it said, but it's worth it. That's what the article said. You might look at these and say these are like dumb statistics, but the article said this is worth it because your happiness makes you the better person. And I was like, wow, that's on the internet. We we always lie. We're like, or we always joke there's a line in a movie that says the internet does not lie. And we always say that in our family. Yes, it does. The internet lies, right? This is truth. I tell my kids in kids' ministry, bring your Bibles. And I always ask them when I tell them, why do I have you bring your Bible to church? And they, if you ask them, they should be able to tell you because we want to make sure you're not lying. Me, the teacher. I said, exactly. So you bring this and you read it for yourself that this is what he says makes you true happy. This is what he says gives you a life of fulfillment and satisfaction. You read it with your own words. If you don't have a Bible, we will give you a Bible today. 
Don't go home without a Bible. Next one, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Oh my gosh, it's 1053. I gotta move. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be satisfied. When you have an actual physical hunger and a thirst, has anybody, have any of you ever gone a day without eating or drinking? You're like, oh, I'm dying. I know as a mom, I feel like I'm gonna faint, and I'm like, I need to eat something, pop sugar in, whatever it is, I need to get on with my day with my kids. This should be a deep hunger and a deep thirst for the things of God. It says for righteousness. Upstairs in kids' ministry today, they're talking about Psalm 23 where he says, he leads me in paths of righteousness. Another word for righteousness is the right ways. So you should be hungering and thirsting for the right ways of God. And this shall make you happy and fulfilled and truly satisfied. What are the right ways? We're reading it right now right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for these right ways of God. This is what will make you satisfied in Jesus, in the Lord. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy from the Strong's Concordance means this, kindness or goodwill toward the miserable and afflicted. Now get this. This is the kicker. Joined with a desire to relieve them. How many of us are kind and good anyway, but we don't have the desire to relieve the person who is afflicted? Did you know that Jesus showed mercy to us, to you and me, when we did not deserve it for a desire for us to be relieved from our affliction? That's why he showed us mercy, for this desire for us to be relieved from our affliction. My son has been such an amazing light and an example of Jesus to the world around him, and I'm so proud of him. When he was little, he was at a school here in Spokane, and he came home a few weeks, and he'd tell me, this kid keeps pushing me, this kid keeps pushing me. And of course, me, I'm like, did you push him back? (laughs) Did you step on his foot and crush his toe? (laughs) no mom. I'm like, oh, okay, what should we do? <laughs> Let's look at the Bible. I said, what, what are you, how are you handling it? Tell a teacher. Why are you not telling a teacher? Mom, it's okay. It's okay. And I'm like, no, you need to handle it. And then we started saying, you know what? Maybe we just need to pray. Maybe we need to pray for our enemies. And we were talking about things like that. And he came home. This was the day before they shut everything down in COVID. <laughs> he came home and he goes, mom, he's like, I talked to that kid today. And I said, you talked to that kid today. What did you say? Did you tell him to stop pushing me? And he goes, I actually asked him if I could pray for him. And he said, and he said, yeah. And so Toby goes, so I just prayed for him. And he's like, and now we're friends. <laughs> yes, amen. Why is it that hard as adults? And I was so blessed. I'm like, well, I, I was taken aback because I was ready to smash that kid into a wall with my fist. I am not a merciful human being. Pray pray for me as your pastor's wife. Then recently, he's been playing basketball at a middle school. I told you, um, one kid's been picking on him more than the others. And again, I'm telling him, well, what are you saying? And Toby has said twice he's retaliated back to the boy, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. There probably is. Sorry, God, be merciful. (laughs) But he, he, he's, well, I gotta be careful. He defended himself. But then he told me, two seconds after he told me he defended himself, he said, Mom, but I want you to know, he's 13. He said, I want you to know that I went back up to the kid and I said, hey, man, I'm sorry I disrespected your opinion. I appreciate your opinion. And I said, what did the kid say? And he goes, oh, nothing. And I'm like, yeah, what? what? 
13-year-old says that. The other kid's got to be super dumbfounded, right? And then he did it again. He picked on him and told me again, said something, and he goes, but then I went back, Mom, and I said, I'm sorry. I said, thanks for telling me what you needed to tell me. And I'm like, man, God, give us the heart of a merciful follower of you, right, that seeks the well-being of other people, that, that, that we are kind and good toward the miserable and afflicted, join with a desire to relieve them. This kid probably has a hard life. We keep telling our kids, hurt people, hurt people. Don't be the one that continues the cycle. Love those people back. Remember what we just learned? He said, go with your enemy two miles when he wants to go one. Give with him your cloak also if he asks for this. You turn the other cheek. Where in the world do you see this in a secular society that says this will bring you happiness? Our world says get on top. Be on top. Be the one that's the most successful. Be the one that makes the most money. Be the one that's the most powerful in your home, the most powerful in your the community, the one that dresses the best, the one that looks the best, the one that's the most fit. It's never, no, no, turn your cheek. It's never, don't let a bully bully you around. It's never pray for your enemies. Have you ever prayed for someone who makes you mad? Wives, have you ever prayed for your husband when they are a complete jerk in the moment? No. If you say yes, please teach a class. It is hard to do that, but we are called to do that. Same with you, men, when you get in fights with other, I can't relate to you, so you pick your own scenario in your head. We are called to be different. We are called to be the lights of this world. We are called to look different. We are called to be countercultural to the world around us. Okay, let's finish up. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This pure in heart is to be unmixed, unmixed without admixture to the things of the world. Psalm 34, 14 says, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. 1 Thessalonians 5, 22, abstain from every form of evil. 1 John 3, 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. If you're practicing a sin, did you hear what he just said? You are of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning, and the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy these works of the devil. Don't let anything be glued to your soul. This says, um, part of the Strong's Concordance says, be free from the admixture of adhesion, and an adhesion to your soul. Anything that adhesives to it, <laughs> glues to it. Don't let the sin stick on you. He says later, if your right eye causes you to sin, take it out. Throw it away. If your right arm causes you to sin, cut it off. Why is he saying such drastic measures? Because sin will drastically lead you to death. Sin will drastically destroy your relationship with your spouse, with your children, with those around you. If you're not married with those around you, he says, cut it off. Deal with it right now. This is why in the Old Testament, he said, cut off the people groups. Women and children, too, need to die. God, why would you kill women and children? Because they were so pagan. They didn't want the, the, the pagan rituals, satanic rituals, to infiltrate his people. This is why sin is so important that you cut it off, that you get rid of it. And he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for you will see God when you are pure in your heart. You will see God when you have confessed your sins one to another so that you may be healed. You will see him come through and revive your soul when you remain pure in heart. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You can say, yes, here I am standing in the middle. I'm a great mediator between so-and-so and so-and-so, and I'm the one that brings peace. But this means blessed are those who are the peacemakers actually offering reconciliation from the world, the dying lost world to a father who saved and created them. It's offering Jesus. It's bringing Jesus. Jesus is the great reconcile. Jesus, reconciler. Jesus is the bridge. He's the one who closed the gap. Did you know that when we sin, we are actually separated from God? There is separation from you and me to God. And so Jesus came and died on the cross for all of our sins to bridge the gap. If you can picture in your mind, a bridge. That's who he is, arched and everything. You get to walk. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. So walk across that bridge. Jesus is the one. So he says, blessed are you, the peacemakers, for you will be called sons of God when you share the gospel with the lost and dying world. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. The last two go together. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, this is interesting. This does not mean... In any way, blessed are you when you're an arrogant fire and brimstone preacher who gets yelled at on the street corner by a mom who's walking her toddlers to buy groceries who doesn't want to scare her kids into heaven and out of hell, right? He doesn't say, blessed are you when you are arguing and debating and heatedly pushing your way upon an unbeliever or someone that you disagree with. It is all these beatitudes that lead up to it, right? Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, the right way's sake. When you are merciful to the mercifullessnesses, those who are not merciful. When you're pure in heart, when you're poor in spirit, when you're hunger and thirsting for righteousness. Blessed are you when you're reviled for that. Blessed are you when you're reviled for living the life Jesus has called you to live with grace. And with salt, he says, let our speech always be seasoned with salt. Don't be the arrogant ones that don't have a love for people. John Mark Comer says in his book, let me be very clear. The people of the world are not our enemy. They are the object of Jesus's love. As Paul wrote, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, including people of different religions, ethical and political perspectives. God so loved the people of the world that he gave his one and only son. Our fight is not against them, but our fight is for them. Our fight is for people. Jesus is for people. We were just talking uh, in my Bible study group on Saturday mornings, we were saying uh, uh, about how he reclined at table in Matthew's house and Matthew was a tax collector. And someone asked, isn't, isn't tax collector a bad thing? And I was like, yeah, they stole money from people and they were gross and dirty. And I said, when Jesus reclined at table, it probably, there were probably prostitutes all over the house. There were, because they brought in their friends. There were probably belly dancers. There were probably drunkens, drunken drunkards. There were probably drugs. There was alcohol. Everything that you can think of was probably around this table, but Jesus sat at the table with them. And we forget, 
We forget that we're called to a lost world. You get so comfortable in your white suburbanite houses and areas and homes and neighborhoods, and we forget that there is a lost and dying world who needs Jesus. My husband has just recently let my son ride the public transportation system by himself, and I'm not super happy, but I'm also convicted that my son is going to be a light on the city bus, and I don't need to take him in my nice big Sequoia car. He can ride on a city bus and get to know people. When I rode the bus, my husband had us ride it so I could be comfortable with Toby riding it. And I had my girls sitting by me and Jared. And people started talking to me. And I got off the bus and Jared goes, I have ridden the bus five times and no one talks to me. And you sat here and people talk to you. (laughs) And I was like, well, I don't know what to say. But I'm like, this is an opportunity to talk to the city of Spokane. You live here. This is your mission field. Your mission field is your communities around you, your neighborhoods around you, the people around you who don't know Jesus. We are not enemies. The the world is not our enemy. They are the ones we are called to love harder, harder. So, sorry, six minutes over. Notice Jesus always says, or has said, blessed are you, when these things happen to you, and when you do these things. Can you put countercultural back up there? If we are trying to be countercultural, a beautiful resistance around us, our life should look like this. And why is it called a beautiful resistance? Like I said, I haven't read John Tyson's book, and I'm excited. It's actually on my uh, husband's bedstand, so I'm pretty excited to start reading it. But what I've interpreted it as, a beautiful resistance, right, is... Like we just said, it's not this resistance of um, evil speaking of the world, a judgmental part of, a judgment of the world, a harshness of the world around us. It should be beautiful in the sense that we are loving harder than we ever have before in the name of Jesus. I have been stirred by my spirit, or been stirred by the spirit in my soul to be this beautiful resistance to my own neighbors around me to teach my kids what it means to be this beautiful resistance to a world around them. And I know that men don't really use the word beautiful, but isn't this such, I just, I'm like this phrase, I want to get a tattoo. (laughs) Be the beautiful resistance, the resistance that is, you are standing against the world, you are not of the world. Actually, in fact, the word church in the Greek means a people called out of the world and to God. We are called out of the world and to God. So you shouldn't look like the world. We should look like Jesus, but in a beautiful, graceful, salty way that brings flavor to the world and light to those around you. Matthew 16, 24 says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So going back to our question, doesn't God want me to be happy? He wants us to die to what the world says will bring us happiness and fulfillment and peace and joy and satisfaction and love and comfort and ourselves. I want you to die to that and I want you to trust me and I want you to follow me and I want you to find your life in me because it is a good life. It is a good life. Do we have hard times? Yes. Do we have mournful seasons where death of loved ones pass? Yes. Do we experience what the world experiences? Yes. 
but we have the creator of the universe and the creator of our, creator of our souls walking with us every single day to give us hope. Let's be the beautiful resistance to the world around us this week. Let's just focus on this week. If you don't know Jesus, don't leave this church without giving your life to Jesus today. I will tell you that you will never regret it. It will be the best decision of your life. And the Bible says tomorrow is not guaranteed your own. Today is the day of salvation. Today you have no idea what's going to happen when you walk out these doors. But Jesus has a plan and a purpose for your life that can be so much greater and so much more fulfilling and satisfying than anything you've dipped your feet in yet. Anyone will testify to that who have walked with Jesus. Let's be the beautiful resistance to the world around us.